everyone, and welcome to this episode of Because Science. I'm Dr. Jen Golbeck, and this week we're talking about a topic that's especially near and dear to my heart, golden retrievers. And in particular, we're talking about the Morris Animal Foundation's Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. This study is the largest observational veterinary study ever undertaken. The Morris Animal Foundation is recruiting 3,000 golden retrievers who will be monitored over the course of their lives. I have a couple special guests joining me today, my dogs Hopper and Venkman. They're both golden retrievers. Venkman is six months old and was too shy to talk to the microphone. Hopper had a few things to say. She's my 18-month-old golden retriever who has just completed her first year in the Morris Animal Foundation's Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. Venkman just enrolled. What we do to participate is relatively simple. We go to the vet once a year, and the dogs give blood samples, nail clippings, hair trimmings, and a few other tests that get sent off to the Morris Animal Foundation. Once a year, I also fill out a survey, which takes quite a bit of time, reporting on everything that my dogs do and encounter. The surveys are about 72 pages, and they include things like behavioral assessments. Is your dog sleepy? Are they active? Are they aggressive? It includes environmental information, like what kind of pesticides they're exposed to, what kind of water they drink, what kind of food you give them, if you supplement with treats or vegetables or fruits. And all that information is collected at the Morris Animal Foundation. Their goal is primarily to study cancer in golden retrievers as a model for studying cancer in dogs. Golden retrievers are amazing dogs, but anecdotally, they seem pretty prone towards developing cancers. So that makes them a good dog to study because the higher incidence of cancer gives researchers more data to work with. This week, we're going to talk to Dr. David Hayworth. He's CEO of the Morris Animal Foundation, and he's the chief scientist directing the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. So maybe we can start and you can just describe a bit about what the Morris Animal Foundation is. Well, sure. I usually like to say this is we're the coolest philanthropy that you've never heard of. Um, we are a 67-year-old public charity that was founded by a veterinarian, actually a veterinarian who had the first companion animal-only practice in the United States in Raritan, New Jersey. And this was 19, late 1940s, and uh, medical research was, was really starting up at the time. And Dr. Morris simply said, you know, the animals have given us so much information about our health, it's time we gave them something back. And so with that founding principle, we've uh, funded over 2,000 studies at veterinary schools all over the world, zoos and other institutes of veterinary knowledge. And we fund science specifically for the, in the interests of animals. So I was wondering if you could give some specific examples of either studies that you funded, aside from this one we're going to talk about, or if there's you know, interesting results that have come out of those earlier studies. Sure. I, you know, we funded over 2,000 studies, so sometimes it's hard for us to get our hands around the breadth of the, of the impact. But just as examples, in the 1980s and uh, late 70s, we funded a lot of the infectious disease work that went into many of the vaccines that we give our dogs and cats and horses every year. 
We've funded over uh, 200 studies on dog and cat cancer, understanding the mechanisms behind it and leading to a lot of the therapies. We also do things dramatically different. So there were some great studies out of UC Davis that we funded uh, looking into different ways to cage cats in shelters so that their stress levels were remarkably reduced, which most people recognize would reduce their levels of behavioral problems as well as their levels of sickness uh, and increased their uh, adoption rates, which was really kind of cool. That's awesome. And then, yeah, it's, those are, I could talk about those for hours. They're really cool studies. And then the, the last example I like to talk about is uh, in our wildlife programs, we funded a number of studies off the California coast looking at an infectious disease agent called toxoplasmosis uh, that comes from domestic cats. And it was caused, as it turned out, by people flushing cat litter down the toilet, which changed laws in California to make that illegal and have saved the sea otter population uh, dramatically, showed a dramatic rebound partially because of that. It's so fun. The breadth and depth of the studies that have been funded through this organization are really just sort of mind-boggling. So let's talk about this golden retriever study uh, in particular. So this is the biggest observational veterinary study ever with 3,000 dogs are going to be in it. So how much are you spending on this study? Oh, I can tell you that for sure. It, it's forecast to be $25 million wow. over, the, over the expectancy of the study. Honestly, I'll tell you, Jen, I hope we can spend a lot more than that because what that $25 million will do is get us to 500 of those 3,000 dogs, hopefully neither yours nor mine, but 500 of those dogs developing cancer, specifically one of four types of cancer. So that's our primary hypothesis behind the study and what we've based our forecasts on. But really the, the opportunity to gather more data about the lifestyles and the health of these animals is so great that I actually hope we can spend quite a bit more. But I promised our trustees and our donors that we, would, we will hold it to $25 million in order to get to that first endpoint. Could you talk about what the four types of cancer are that you're particularly interested in and why you picked that and, and maybe about the primary hypothesis itself? Sure. <laughs> Happy to. Well, um, so the four cancers to start with are lymphoma and osteosarcoma, or bone cancer. Those two are, are molecularly are dramatically similar to human cancer of the same type. So human B-cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and osteosarcoma, which happens fairly frequently in, in children. The other two diseases are not found in humans very often, hemangiosarcoma, or uh, it's a cancer of the blood vessels. And then lastly, uh, mast cell disease or a cancer of the, of the mast cells, which are an immune cell in the skin. Yeah, hermangiosarcoma is one that I unfortunately have seen a lot of friends have their dogs go through. And that uh, is like a constant fear of mine. I mean, with Goldens, they get cancer so much. But that one especially where it's just like all of a sudden there's this huge problem and there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah, even even with all my training, I, I've lost two dogs to mangiosarcoma and never saw it coming either. It, yeah. it is it is one of the cruel cancers. It reminds me a lot in clinical manifestation of pancreatic cancer in people. You just don't see it coming until all of a sudden it's pretty late stage. Yeah. Um, so these are not happy things for us to talk about, but really that's the reason that we're doing that. You asked why we chose those? Yeah. One... We know that they're really common, and your experiences and mine have also have shown us that they are 
horrifically common. Uh, and, and secondly, we feel we have, let's say, we've got good guesses that this is that there are genetic, environmental, and nutritional reasons behind it. And so therein lies the hypothesis. Uh, in observational studies, it's a little harder to do the classic hypothesis theory because what you're really doing is gathering data to find risk factors. But what the intent of the study is to identify the major genetic, nutritional, and environmental risk factors for these four types of cancer, but by extension, all other health, major health problems of, of golden retrievers and dogs in general. So both my dogs are very young, have an 18-month-old and a 6-month-old. And, oh, my. Uh, yeah, so I just filled out the one-year survey for my older dog and the entry survey for my younger dog. And so they're like 72 pages. And I, I was actually really surprised, you know, filling out the one for my older dog at some of the questions like, um, you know, what kind of bowl do they drink from? Is it stainless or plastic or uh, ceramic? And so I was wondering, if, uh, there's obviously a ton of environmental information that you're collecting. And, uh, you know, are there any particular environmental points that you think are, um, that would sort of be surprising to people to find out about? Because, like, you know, the pesticides, that's not too surprising. The bull type really surprised me. Um, you know, are there interesting hypotheses or just interesting data points that you're collecting that um, might be surprising to people? So, you know, one of the things that I find really fascinating, uh, and it's, it's less a data point than it is um, an aspect, when you think about the total fluid volume that you bring into your body versus what your dogs bring into their bodies and how much of that comes from your municipal water supply. So I, I travel a lot in my position. And so I, in the last two weeks, I've drank water from Chicago, uh, from San Francisco, from Southern California, and, and from Denver. And that's not to count all the perhaps Diet Cokes and glass of wine and beer that I've had. So I always guesstimate that maybe 5% of the water, of the fluid intake that I have comes from my municipal water supply. But 98% of my dog's water comes from our municipal water supply, and the other 2% comes from puddles pretty close <laughs> to our house. So um, one of the things about the environmental aspects is that it's a much simpler system if you think about it because my dog who's a beautiful 20 month old golden retriever uh, he drinks his water from the same two bowls he drinks it all from our municipal water supply he um, plays in a pretty circumscribed about three and a half mile area we live near a state park so he and I get to go walk in there every every weekend for a few hours but he's not it's not nearly the complicated life that I live in terms of environmental impacts. And so at the end stage, when we look at his health over the course of his life, we'll be able to identify in a, in a much more simple system all the impacts that he has had. And so the water is a great example of that. Um, you know, I know what kind of pipes I have in my house. I know exactly which bowls he drinks out of. And I know, I know where the water is coming from. Um, and so we can look into that and compare his water that's coming from uh, Denver, Colorado, to your water in your dogs and see if there's any differences in the way these dogs have both grown in their health and also the residues that we'll find in their in the samples that we're taking from these guys. That's so interesting. I, ne I mean, it makes perfect sense now that you explain it, but I never would have thought about that. 
One of the really exciting aspects of this study um, is that dogs live relatively simple lives, and I think that's part of their appeal. But um, you know, they sleep on the same couches. In my in my house, they sleep on the same couches, chairs, beds, whatever you <laughs> wherever they seem to fall fall down, um, and they live in a pretty circumscribed area. And so, and they unfortunately, and and this is the sad part, but they don't live very long. And so a similar study to try to identify these things in humans would be extraordinarily long and very complicated, trying to take in all these disparate effects. In, in our companion animals, it, it gets simpler. First one, why golden retrievers? Always a great question. Um, and it, I have uh, uh, three serious answers and a flippant one. <laughs> so the, the serious answers are they're a very common breed. By, by most estimates, they're the second most common breed in the country behind Labrador Retrievers. And it was important to do a purebred dog for those same reasons I just mentioned. It simplifies the genetics. All 300,000 Golden Retrievers estimated in the United States are about as genetically diverse as four random humans put into a room together. They're not exactly identical twins, but they're very close. And, and that helps us a lot to be able to determine signal from the noise when it comes to looking at genetic variability. So those are two reasons. They're common and their genetics are, are pretty straightforward and, and pretty homogeneous. Um, the third is they, we believe, and it's only anecdotal data at this point, uh, but we believe that they have a higher level of incidence rates of cancer than other breeds do. Um, it's always hard to figure that out in in veterinary medicine because we don't have a center for disease control and we don't have large cancer registries. But we believe you talk to enough veterinarians and all veterinarians will nod their heads and say, yep, golden retrievers, they get a lot of cancer. And so because cancer was our primary endpoint, those were the sort of the three reasons that golden retrievers. The last reason, and it's purely selfish, is they are so darn cute and photogenic that it, <laughs> makes, it makes it a lot easier to, for recruiting posters. As a scientist, I look at all the data that you're collecting, and I know all the you know, environmental information that I'm providing you in the survey, um, and then I, you know, there's quite a bit of uh, you know, blood work, and I think you take nail clippings and everything from the vet, and then you have this for 10 years plus all the supplemental vet visits. You have this huge amount of data. So how are you actually going to analyze that? Like, What are some of the strategies you have for finding meaning in this huge pool of data that you'll have? Well, that's a great question. And we actually have three strategies that we'll be doing simultaneously. Um, so the first one is every year, well, excuse me, twice a year, we have some of the best scientists, both in human observational studies as well as the veterinary world, who we get together and, as a steering committee and we show them where we are with the data and they start postulating questions that could be asked against this data set. So going back to our earlier conversation about water, so we might be asking, there might be evidence that um, certain water supplies or low levels of arsenic, I'm making something up, have an impact on thyroid hormones. Well, we've got the data about thyroid hormone levels, and we've got data about where these dogs are and therefore what the arsenic levels are in everyone's municipal water supply. So we can test that. And so that, that's, one, that's one course. The second course is that we have an epidemiologist that we're hiring into the Morris Animal Foundation as, as a full-time scientist who are trained to look at this kind of data set and ask those questions. 
and be able to statistically come up with the, with the answers essentially is this is there a link here is there a correlation between such a factor a and health effect b and then the last way which is the way i'm sort of most excited about is that we're crowdsourcing it we're a philanthropy so this data belongs to the world uh, the details are a little sketchy still because we haven't gotten to a place where we really have the data but it's our intent to release the data to the scientific community and i have this imagination of back when I was in graduate school, wouldn't this be a wonderful data set that's free, that falls into my lap and lets me ask some really interesting correlative questions that then I can take and, and actually try to assign causation to it. What happens if a dog who's enrolled in the study gets cancer? Well, several things. Uh, first of all, we, we've got folks here who are trained in, uh, well, we have five veterinarians full-time who work at the foundation. And so while we offer no medical advice, we can, of course, spend a little time with, with the owners and walking through what this means. Sometimes that's easier with us than it is with your own vet. But the main thing that happens is that we ask the veterinarian and the owner to consent to a biopsy of that cancer because we really want a definitive diagnosis to make sure that what we think is cancer really is cancer. That sounds a little odd because in humans, that's the first step. But if you think about it in dogs, we often make presumptive diagnoses and then jump to, um, jump to treatment plans. In other words, well, it's a 14-year-old golden retriever, pretty lethargic, quick onset, not interested in food, pale mucous membranes, must be hemangiosarcoma. Well, might be hemangiosarcoma. Certainly that's high on our list, but we'd like that to be sure. So we do ask for a biopsy. And we also ask if the inevitable happens and the dog has to pa and passes away, then we also ask for a, a necropsy or an autopsy to be performed and collect some of the, the rest of the tissues. That, that really helps the study a dramatic, uh, in a dramatic way. But the main thing that happens when a dog gets, the dog in the study gets cancer is that they get treated like they would otherwise. And we follow that treatment along with the owner and, and uh, hopefully come to some the right conclusions, which, uh, which we, we certainly hope is a good one. And so obviously cancer is the focus of this study. Um, but I saw in the surveys that I was filling out, and, and I think probably in my background reading, that you're interested in other health conditions. Um, and, you know, I, I saw when I was filling out the one-year study for my dog that I have a lot of supplemental vet visits to put in because she, uh, she was in quite a bit this first year. And so I'm wondering what other health conditions you're looking at in the study. And given all the data you have, if you feel like you may actually be able to discover a lot there along the way. I think, Jen, this is, this is where the study gets super exciting. Uh, cancer is clearly a big problem in dogs. And for simplicity's sake, when people ask me, why are we running the study? It's to identify those main causes for those four cancers. But the, the study is powered to get those, get those 500 cases in a reasonable amount of time. Meaning that's how we determine 3,000 dogs. But any disease that's more common than, than those cancers we'll also be able to pick up. And in fact, we think that we'll be able to have every major health issue in dogs, not just in Goldens, but in dogs, we'll be able to get some really valuable clues on their risk factors for those diseases and potentially even which therapies are more effective than others. 
because no one's ever, as you pointed out, done a study nearly of this scope and scale. And so we're, we're quite excited. You're right. We've got so many supplemental things. For instance, there's, I, I think it's about 14 pages of behavioral questions. Mm -hmm. now, now, probably behavior isn't all that big of a risk factor for cancer. We don't know that, but that's, I think it's a safe statement. But just imagine if we could find genetic links to behavior. And while we can't talk about that in people very easily, in dogs, it's very clear. Everyone looks at different breeds of dogs and talks about the behavior stereotypical of that breed. So we know that there are genetic influences on behavior. And with this, with the data that we're getting, we should be able to find a lot of those genetic links towards behavior. Now, that's exciting for a lot of reasons, but let me just give you an example of one that gets me excited. Can you imagine going into a shelter and finding a puppy and knowing that the genetic predisposition of that puppy is to sleep 22 hours a day, <laughs> like a mastiff does, as opposed to a puppy in the same litter, perhaps, who is more like a Jack Russell Terrier and needs to run 20 miles a day. Those are very different outcomes and could really help our shelter systems place those dogs otherwise, or even just know what you're going to get when you get your dog. So I think, that while that's not exactly a health issue, I think every common health issue that we see in dogs, we should be able to identify risk factors. And then those, of course, will lead to causation studies. So that, you know, only things that observational studies can give us is correlation. Does this trait correlate with that disease. And what we hope to find, of course, is that second study that says definitively, yes, that trait causes that disease. I'm sure there's things that I haven't asked. So, you know, what are the things that you're most excited about? What are things that you, people may not know uh, about the study that you'd want to say? Well, I, I think sometimes people say, so this is a great study it'll help you people who have golden retrievers. Um, one of the comments that I've made for a long time is, yeah, for good scientific reasons, we chose to do this in golden retrievers. But golden retrievers are a pretty good model for dogs because they're dogs. And so we like to, I like to remind people that every finding that we have for these golden retrievers will help all dogs, and many of them will help other species cats, horses, and there is a great deal of excitement in the human health community once they start engaging and seeing the potential of what we're seeing in these model systems. Again, it goes back to the simplicity. We've had some very interesting conversations with the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences because while you get the influence of your home environment maybe 10, 14 hours a day, your dog typically gets it 22 to 24 hours a day, and the human scientists can see that as a very effective model for some of the, some of the environmental influences on health of people. So what's most exciting? Most exciting to me is that we're going to be able to, as long as the study gets executed, and now I am absolutely confident it will get executed appropriately, we're going to make massive inroads in understanding diseases of dogs. But also, I think that this is going to give us great clues for health conditions in other species, including people. And so those, that, that gets me just uh, excited and wants to wake up every morning. Well, Dr. David Hayworth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. 
thank you for your time. Thanks for your interest. This is great. And please, uh, if you could, give, give those two girls at home a kiss for me. <laughs> I will. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, it was a pleasure. If you happen to have a golden retriever and you want to be part of this amazing study, it's pretty straightforward. You can go to the Morris Animal Foundation website, and I'm going to include a link in the podcast. If you have a healthy golden retriever who's between six months old and two years old, you can sign them up for the study. It's basically just one extra vet visit per year. You could even combine it with your annual checkup. You fill out a survey online once a year, and that's it. The great part of it is, if your dog is unfortunate enough to develop cancer, there's people at the Morris Animal Foundation who will really help guide you through your options. So you have specialists that can help you in a time that can be really hard to deal with as a pet owner. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Because Science. Please subscribe and please share with your friends. If you have any feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter at Jen Golbeck or follow any of the links on the podcast that will get you to contact information for me. I'm Dr. Jen Golbeck, and on behalf of me, Hopper, and Venkman, thanks for listening.